Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Well, happy Sabbath. Finally, we're going to continue that series. Like, uh, I, I feel that that was too, so long ago that I even forgot where to continue from. And, uh, but uh, the Lord led us to preach all the things uh, in between. And we had a lot of special events like some baptisms and some uh, ordination and other things that kind of made us to make little detours. But... At the end, now it's time to go back on track. Uh, for those of you that are coming on the f- for the first time, uh, the first few minutes of uh, the sermon of today will be like a quick uh, recap. I'm going to try to cover all the bases for you. I will not go into much detail on scripture as I had done on the past, but you can always go to your YouTube page or our Facebook page and write and watch the older sermons of this series so you can get fully caught up. Or you can always ask me something that you didn't get over potluck. Uh, because Bible becomes even more delicious with food. So don't, don't waste the opportunity. And uh, today, uh, I'm going to try to uh, wrap, uh, start to wrap that second part of the series. Just to remind you, like the first part of the series, we cover about God's love and what, how God's love influences our life, how God's love uh, uh, is meaningful to us. And uh, in this part of the, the series, that second part, we are going over the great controversy and what that means for us today. So today, I, wa- I want to start to put everything we study on both in both places together so we can understand how God is dealing with that great controversy and how that great controversy will end and on the next sermon uh, I will talk about what's in it for us how should we live and thrive on that great controversy what's the implications for that in the way I read my Bible and in the way I live my life and then we finish that second uh, portion but before we really start to 
go deeper in scripture today, we have to pray. Because only through the Holy Spirit we can understand fully what God wants us to get from scripture today. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads to pray to our God. Dear Father in heaven, I pray in a special way today for those that are here, uh, for those that are watching through the internet as they do usually or because they are sick and had to stay home. And I pray for our fans in a way uh, because we need your help. We don't have our eyes are not open to see what happens on the spirit of realm. So we have to trust in you and trust in your Holy Spirit to guide us on this process. As we read the scripture today, as we talk about all the things that we already talked, and as we go to new territory through scripture, help us be your guide. May the same spirit that inspired the prophets to guide us today, whispering in our ears what we need to hear. I ask you special blessings, dear Lord, over me. May the self get out of the way. And uh, may you speak through me today. I have no right to be here, but in the name of Jesus, I come as your spokesperson. Help, help me to faithfully say what you want me to say. If, if what I want to say, I had already planned, let me do so. If you want me to say things that I didn't plan to say, please guide me on this as well. And help those that will be hearing to check everything in the scripture and growing faith in you, knowing that you are trusting and uh, loving God. Bless us. Uh, fill us with your spirit. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, before I start, I need a volunteer to help me with one or two passages that I may ask you in, uh, to read. Who can help me with that? Mm, I need somebody a little older. Because, okay, can you, uh, Aaron, can you make uh, uh, the mic get to Jerry? I, I show a few minutes before I need you, Jerry, but if you want... Start to open your Bibles on the book of Job. So, uh, I want to start first with a story to set the stage for what I want to tell. That story is a true story. It happened before my day, before I started my ministry. But like, it ended when I was starting my ministry and, I, and it was told in, a, in one of the councils that I participated in, my, in Brazil where I was at the time, uh, and was a sobering reminder for me about many things, but I want to use in a special way today. It's a story about a pastor. He was somebody very famous in our denomination in my country at the time. Not like a Doug Bachelor famous, but perhaps like, who's a, like a pastor that's famous here in Michigan, but like does not go, it's like not a national-wide Pastor, but here on the state I was working, everybody knew him at the time. So he was like pastor of a big church. It's like if he was pastoring like village or PMC here in Michigan. So like everybody knew him. And uh, he was a good preacher. He was known to be a dedicated man of God. One day he was preaching his sermon. 
And uh, a woman enters and interrupts him. And they start to uh, ask, like, why are you not answering my calls? Like, we are in love with each other. You're not seeing me any longer. And everybody, like, all the faces on the audience. Could you imagine somebody, if that happened with me or with somebody else preaching? And somebody comes with, like, those sort of accusations, like, you're not visiting me any longer. We're not meeting anymore. What's wrong with you? I love you. You said you love me. And the pastor said, like, no, that's all lies. That, that woman is crazy. And, like, uh, like he, he tried the best to kind of defuse the accusations. But then she started to talk about things that made his wife cry. And then everybody understood that he, she probably was telling the truth. Because she started to talk about intimate details of his body. Like in, about parts that only his wife should know. And uh, when the wife started to cry, that was the, the validation everybody needed to really believe the story that that woman was telling. To cut a long story short. He still denied. And he denied, denied, denied. But nobody believed him. Even his wife didn't believe. Because like. How come she knows all those details. If that's not true. And. Uh, she left him. He got abandoned by his kids. He left ministry. Uh, and. He ended up like going to. Uh, a countryside somewhere. And work as a farmer worker. Like an, as a hired hand. And he did that for, for a long time, for about two decades or so. And as, as I said, that was way before my time. And uh, like after I started my ministry, something happened. Somebody called the president of that conference. Was not the same president any longer, but was somebody that was familiar with the case. That woman was dying. And uh, she called the 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 president, and she confessed that that was our lie. And like, uh, and the only way she knew all the intimate details is because she was a nurse. A little while back, this pastor had like an incident. I can't remember what was. It was a heart attack or something. He had to go to the hospital. And she was one of her, his nurses. So she saw everything. And uh, she used that. Because she had an agenda, I don't want to go into the details, but derailed that pastor's ministry and nobody believed him because she, her story was so crafty with the details that she got in real life, but now she was torn because she was dying with cancer and she needed to like some sort of autonomy to uh, closure to her sins. And uh, then the president was in shock. He was good friends of, with this guy back when. And then they tracked the guy down. He was living in a different state. And uh, they approached him and like, listen, that's what happened. We are sorry by what you did. We are sorry because we didn't believe you. Uh, but the, pre the, 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 the pastor said like, well, my life now it's over. My ministry is long gone. My wife and kids think I'm the 
worst person ever. That I'm a fraud, a liar. So, like, uh, they actually offered him, like, all the back pay and whatever, like, because they felt the miscarriage of justice. They didn't look deep enough to really. And, uh, but at the end of the day, his life was destroyed. This pastor has been falsely accused. He was innocent. He was uh, faithful to his uh, uh, wife and faithful to his family, faithful to his church. But that didn't save him of those very crafty uh, lies because nobody believed him. And the consequences for his life were disastrous. Like his, his, life, was, his life was over. And uh, that's the point I'm trying to make. Lies, when believed, they have disastrous consequences. Like, uh, if, we be- if you believe a lie, it affects your life. And it affects a life of innocent people as well. And in this great controversy, God is the one being uh, falsely accused. His character has been assassinated by the devil, by the enemy. And believing on those lies, believing on that false representation of God that uh, most Christians come up with is dangerous because make you not appreciate who God is. And I, I mentioned this before to you, but I heard many, many times from people that came from atheism. And they said, like, the reason why I'm atheist is because the God of the Christians is such a horrible God that I don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes we have part on that defamation as well. And, uh, for example, what happens when things go wrong on this world? God is blamed. Uh, sometimes he's blamed directly. Other times we kind of blame him indirectly. By, uh, by asking questions like, why God did allow this to happen? I shared with you long ago, as part of this series, I think it was on the second sermon, when my dad died. And I, I was serious. Like, uh, I was waiting for my dad to get baptized and uh, uh, to convert, pray for him for 27 years. When he finally accepts Jesus and uh, went to church for the first time of his life as a believer, on the, like, keep the Sabbath for the first time and die on the next day, I turned to God, what's wrong with you? Because I could not really believe. And sometimes we accuse God indirectly. And uh, so why there is so much evil on the world? That was the, the, the first question we tried to answer on this series. On the past sermons, I gave several uh, biblical uh, ways to deal with that problem. And, uh, and all based on uh, God's love, he's not responsible for all the evil because all the creatures have their free will. And uh, because they can choose to do right or wrong, our choices have repercussions in somebody else's life. So that's the explanation for the evil that is on the world. But uh, another thing that uh, we cover is like that the 
why God didn't destroy Satan right from the beginning, right when he started his lies. Because that conflict is not about power. That conflict is about character. If the conflict was about power, there would be no conflict. Because like, nobody can face God. Even the more powerful angel or the more powerful creature, creature is just it. It's a creature that can be undone by, by the creator. So what's the great controversy is all about? It's about, the, about God and his character. The very, if you go back to Ezekiel 28 as we study in past sermons, the very first accusation that the devil did was that God was not good, he was not love, and that his laws, his government was unjust. He was holding things, things back, he was being a tyrant. And then he started to spread his lies, as we read in Ezekiel 28, from angel to angel. And then God said, enough is enough, and he started a process of dealing with the problem of evil once and for all. Like, uh, but again, since the problem is about his character, God uh, could not just zap Satan out of existence. Because that would actually validate his claims that God was a tyrant. Like, uh, he doesn't allow anybody to, di to diverge, to make their own uh, uh, decisions. So, what happens with Satan? He was destroyed. So, he would be validated. There is an interesting uh, chapter on the Bible that uh, is uh, Deuteronomy 19 that uh, talks about how God deals with that very sort of problem that starts in heaven. So let's open Deuteronomy 19 real quick. Because like, remember what happened in heaven as we study in Deuteronomy um, in, uh, in uh, Ezekiel 28. Satan started to gossip and to misrepresent God's character. So God left scripture and left a, a bunch of things on his laws that were to, supposed to be normative to, for Israel, but also they give an example of how God deals with this, the problems, how God justice operates. So go to Deuteronomy 19. Let's read starting in verse 15. Uh, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that, commit, that he commits. By the, mount of one or, by the mount of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing and what Satan was doing on heaven, falsely testifying against God. So what we shall do? Uh, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then we shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. 
so you shall put away evil among you. Let me stop here before I read the last verse. That's exactly what God is doing. He is allowing the great controversy to go on. And uh, we live in a theater where God's character is in display through my life and your life. And uh, he uh, is allowed to, Satan is allowed to have some latitude to show his face. So uh, at the end, when God solves that problem, everybody on the universe will, will say, as the Bible says, like that our knee will bow and saying that God is good. So that's uh, why he's taking long. But why he's doing so? Let's read the next verse. And those, verse 20, and those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit shoot evil among you. God is allowing all that to happen because when the problem of evil is finally done, evil will never rise again. And those accusations he did in heaven after the creation of man, we, we saw this in Genesis 3, that we repeated that, those accusations to Adam and Eve. And if you read uh, Genesis 3, first thing he does, like, did not, God, did not God forbid you to eat all the trees of the, the garden? Like, what he was really saying. Is not God, like, really a bad God? Like, he's such a tyrant, like, he puts a lot of restrictions on you? And then the next thing that he says, like, no, no, he's lying to you. He's holding things up because he doesn't want you to eat this, otherwise you're going to know everything, good and evil. He's basically saying, he's not only a tyrant, but he's no good. He's, with, he's holding things up from you. He doesn't want you to grow and flourish because he doesn't love you as he says he does. And uh, those are the same lies he keeps Repeating to us today. We see that conflict about his character going over and over and over again in the scripture. We saw a few other passages. For example, uh, in Ezekiel 28, as I, as I mentioned, we saw uh, like the, in, the, in Jesus' temptation on the desert... He repeated the same accusations against Jesus himself, trying to trick Jesus in, into something. And he keeps doing the same for us today, because the center of this thing is about his character. We also study Matthew 13, where Jesus make a parable, the, uh, that famous parable where the owner of the plot plants a good seed. And then an enemy comes at night and plants tares among the good uh, wheat seed. And then when things start to sprout out, uh, God, that is the owner of the plot, according to Jesus, on that parable in Matthew 13, he is inquired by the angels, by his servants. And uh, the angel asks, did you not plant a good seed? What is be, below that question is like, what's wrong with you? Did you? What did you do wrong? 
like because clearly there's stuff going wrong there with the seed that you planted and then God explains that was not me an enemy did that and then the angels once they understood that they said okay so let's get rid of this and God says no we have to wait till the end of time till the day of judgment because if we take action now that will that will be too much collateral damage I can uh, damage some of the good wheat some of my good people in the process of trying to uproot evil and I don't want to do that so let's wait for them to get fully grow let's evil show its face let's good show its face and then we will be able to uh, separate the wheat from the tares and the tares will be bundled up will be burned and the wheat we're going to be collected. The wheat are, are, are the righteous that we're going to be living with Jesus forever. So that was a miniature version of the great controversy. And uh, God let us very clear that sometimes he does not interfere with the evil that goes on the world because his interference would cause more evil than harm. He's Quite often he has to allow everything to follow its course. So uh, he does not intervene swiftly and recklessly. And thus causing more uh, good, more evil than good. So again, that controversy is about his character. And character accusations cannot be uh, resolved by force. Sometimes the use of force even makes things worse. On, when the character is on the line. So, uh, a conflict of character can only be resolved by demonstration. Like, uh, I guess everybody here has been falsely accused at some point. Uh, what didn't happen with that pastor did happen with me sometimes when I was falsely accused. Like, people said, like, Mabio, I hear what those people are saying, but that is not what I know like that's not you so there's something wrong on that story that's not being fully revealed and why because a character accusations can only be proved right or wrong to demonstration through observation and God has allow has to allow time to flow by it why because if God's character is good then we can live a life of enjoyment of love with him with, and with others. That, that's the highest good that anyone can desire. But if God is really a tyrant. I don't want to be near to him. So that's why that great controversy was started. That, uh, there are several books that shows about that uh, uh, battle in the Bible. But I want to call your attention now as we start really the sermon. Uh, to the book of Job. Uh, let's open our Bibles on the book of Job and let's read verse 1 of the, of the book. I read here from the NIV, verse 1, 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shone 
evil. And that description is coming from God himself. Like, this guy was all that. And, uh, but now let's go to verse 6. Can you read for us, uh, Jerry, from verse 6 until uh, verse 10? Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Mm -hmm. So, what's happening here? We see Satan entering on the scene in a meeting uh, of the heavenly council. Like, uh, and uh, I mentioned this before, we went a couple of uh, verses on previous sermons about uh, what that council is. It's basically the clean house where God has to show himself and like to make sure that everything he does is above board. Follow his own rules in order to at the end be proven righteous. Uh, another verse Another passage that's very interesting about that. It's on uh, Psalm 82. And uh, Psalm 82, I'm going to just read a couple of verses so you get the sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, Psalm 82 talks about uh, that. It says, God stands on the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. He's there. He's presiding that council. And uh, that, those gods here are gods with a uh, lowercase. So meaning other celestial beings. And, uh, and uh, he's basically uh, chastising them. Because he continues. Verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know nor understand. They walk about in darkness. And now the foundations of the earth that's unstable. And like, for you to get the context, he is talking about the fallen angels that somehow they preside uh, over the things of this earth. Why? Because God, as we saw before, God gave the keys for Adam and Eve. And he said, you rule the earth in my place. We saw that in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 3, 
Adam and Eve defeat, uh, they are co-opted for defection and they go to Satan's side. And now Satan holds the key. He is the representative of the earth, he and his angels. And he is the one being chastised as the, represent, as the representatives of earth. And note what God says. Uh, verse 6. You, say, you said you are, you are gods. And all of you are like children of the Most High. But you shall die like men. And fall like one of the princes. And then the psalmist finishes with a request. Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. He is basically longing to a day where Satan will not have dominion over earth. He will not have a seat on that heavenly council. He will stop to, to, to accuse us and to have dominion over all, over all things. But anyway, going back to Job. Uh, in Job, we saw that scene of heavenly council. And uh, what's the first thing that God does when Satan gets on the scene? He calls him out. Who are you? What are you doing here? And what Satan answers? I came from the earth. From through, I'm through and through there. God didn't ask because he didn't want to. That was kind of perhaps a handshake. Because... We, why? We see exactly the same scene happening in chapter 2. And God, Satan going up again. God making the same question. And Satan giving the same answer. What he's really saying. I own the place. That's why I can go to wherever I want. Now the place is mine. I got from, you gave to Adam and Eve. I got from them. Now it's my place. I govern as I wish. That was the the, the stuff that was going on there. And uh, as he asserts his right to be there as the representative of earth, then he, goes there, he went there with an agenda. He had an agenda in place. And God knew. God knew that he wanted to once more uh, smear his name and to bring accusations and something funny happens uh, it comes the question have you considered my servant Job he's all that he's upright this and that and the other that's strange if you don't get the context it's like the same if I'm preaching here and then I start I stop my sermon and like uh, just ask you have you seen my son Andre he's such a handsome guy he's awesome he's even preaching today he's outstanding He's preaching in Mount Pleasant, so pray for him. Uh, and uh, you would look to me, what he's talking about? That has nothing to do with anything of his sermon. But there was an undercurrent that uh, the author is introducing to us. There was that uh, uh, ongoing context about God's character and Satan continually accusing him. And now that he owns earth, he was saying like, I'm doing... My government, my government is better than yours. And then he's saying, no, no, no. Have you seen my servant, Joe? He's living on your territory. But he's my servant. He's mine. He's doing everything I 
I, I, I expect from one of my servants. He's upright. You cannot even touch it. Then Satan comes with the accusation. Ah, but that's easy. I would be doing the same thing. You just put like a, a fence around him. You guarded him. Nobody can touch him. I cannot touch him. That's why he is out there. Because basically he's saying, you are bribing him. That's not even fair. It's not even fair. But that evinces something. That there was an underlying uh, rule. And I explained that before. So I'm going to just mention on the great controversy. Like Satan owned the territory. So by default, he controlled the lives of everybody on that territory. But if somebody on his territory switched alliance, allegiances to God, he could not touch it. Because now, God would put like a edge of protection around that person. And he could not touch him. And he said, that's unfair. Like, you are being, you are rigging the game. That that's not fair. And uh, then he says like, if you allow me to touch the things he has, he's going to recant real quick. He's going to sing like a canary. Canary. Uh, he's going to sing like a, like a canary. And he's going to just go away from you. And God said, fine. Do it. But don't touch his life. So, he goes, and uh, amazingly enough, Job is still praising God. And then in chapter 2, we see a repetition of that story. But now, Satan comes with a second set of accusations. He comes with a second set of accusations. But so far, there's a few things we see. We see that, that there's a heavenly counsel. That... Uh, that uh, Satan goes there and claims to have some unfairness. And he asks God and the council to allow him to change the rules of the game a little bit. So he could probe Job and prove that God's way of doing things is wrong. And uh, Satan alleges that the head of protection that is a, God is allotted to do around his people is unfair on that situation. And uh, uh, that proves that uh, there is limits to Satan's uh, rule. But those limits can be changed dynamically uh, by God. We don't know all the details. But here we are giving just one of the instances where this happens. But then on chapter 2, how that happens again. Can you read real quick for us, Jerry, from verses 1 to 7? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, 
a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a, a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, I think you went too far, Jerry. Oh, did I? <laughs> Don't get too excited. <laughs> uh, so, like what happened here? Satan comes again. And he's such an egocentric person that he, he says, like he claims, Job didn't have enough. Like because you're preserving his life, his health. But touch his life. Touch his skin. Then he will recant. Like it's, it, I personally think he only asked that. Because he's such a bad person. Just self-centered. Because uh, as a father. Like I can relate with Job that the worst has already happened. Like he lost his kids. All his kids. Like, I cannot phantom losing a kid, one of my loved ones, or losing my wife. So, but Satan, since he doesn't care about anybody, just himself, he said, like, let's touch him. And you, God, touch, allow him to go, not only to kill him, but like, other than that, he did his best, made him very sick, and uh, God responded uh, Satan's accusations before the heavenly council by allowing Satan to put his theory onto test and uh, granting Job, Job another round of harm uh, grant Satan another round of harming Job to put his theory and uh, Satan brought in numerous calamities over Job Job kept faithfully he, yes he, every now and then he did as, as I did on the past. Like, what's wrong with you, God? Why are you allowing this? But that's okay when you do it with God. God wants you to argue with him, to tell him how is, as it is so he can talk with you back as he did with Job. And at the end of the book, God, is, God found Job righteous. His friends were wrong, the ones that falsely accused him, but he was found uh, right. And he kept blameless making false the accusations of Job. So once the trial was over, Job was not in trial. God was. And Satan was using Job, Job to uh, inflict pain to God because he could not face God directly. So he did the next best thing he could, inflict pain to his kids. Like, if you want me make me really suffer, mess with my kids. Don't do that, but you'll get the point. Uh, 
And uh, what we learned so far in that story, there's a few implications that I want to highlight. First, that in this great controversy, bad things happen with good people. And sometimes we don't know why. If you read the book of Job, God never tells him why. He just tells Job, keep hanging in there. And at some point, he receives uh, what he, he lost back. We also learn here that Satan, not God, is the monster that continually is trying to inflict pain and suffering over people. He's the one causing the natural calamities that befall Job, the health crisis that befall his family, his, everything that happened with him and with us. And we also learn that God usually protects his people from all of this. And if our eyes would be open today, we would see that uh, the angels of the enemy tries to inflict pain and suffering for us all the time. And most often than not, God rebukes this attacks. But every now and then, by some reason that we don't know, and we only will know in eternity, God allows some of those things to, to pass through. And uh, otherwise, he would not be allowing Satan to have a fair chance to prove his case. And thus that would cause doubts in the minds of celestial beings. And evil could be raising again. So God has to be above board in everything. But also we learn that Satan, even in what he does, he is restricted temporarily. He, he cannot do what he wishes. And uh, there are some rules in place that I call, for the lack of a better name, rules of engagement. Where, in this great controversy, Satan has to abide by those rules, but God has to abide by those rules as well. In the end, Job was vindicated by God. His friends were shown to have been wrong assumptions, as we do as well. But the text get, uh, give indication that Job received uh, uh, wisdom, not about his problem per se, but he got a vision of the great controversy. He got a vision of how God operates. There's so many variables in play that the human mind in this side of eternity cannot really understand. And uh, uh, we cannot assume that every situation is like that. That's just one of the instances of those rules. I don't have here time to go in each one of those rules. But if you really want to know, go back to some of my previous sermons or ask me through, like, post a message on Facebook or ask me here in Potluck and I can send you by email a document where I have all the instances that are identifiable on Scripture. There is many, many instances that are identifiable in Scripture. That's not everything, but that's enough knowledge for us to know how God operates and that we can trust on Him. But, uh, uh, and that stuff is something that we can find both on the New and on the Old Testament. That great controversy is, uh, is permeated on the very fabric of both sides of the Bible. And like a just to prove a point, let me ask you one thing. On the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, what's the biggest 
sin of all. No. Idolatry. It's replacing God by something else. It's the only sin on the Bible. Like our the sins. Like if you do the sin. Then you should be put to death. Or like expelled from the people. And whatever. But. Worshipping all the gods on the Bible is so bad. That if you read Deuteronomy 13. Like even speaking about it. Even if I get here to like. Jerry. Let's go there and worship something else. Like Baal or like something. Even I didn't do yet. I'm just inviting Jerry. Jerry was on the obligation to report this. And I would be dragged out to the city. And stoned. So that indicates like how grave and how bad this is. That's the number one. What's the number two? Is committing injustice. Unrighteousness. Against your fellow. uh, Brothers and sisters. Your neighbors. That's why Jesus. Gave those big commandments. Like. Love your God. Above all things. And your neighbor. As yourself. So. He was summarizing. The two biggest points of scripture. Against. God's character against like his love against worshiping something else and uh, against uh, injustice to our fellow brothers and sisters. And why I'm asking that? Like uh, if you go with me with uh, Deuteronomy 32 uh, verse 17, we're going to see one of the many instances of idolatry on the Bible. Like that's prevalent on the Old and the New Testament. And just because we don't bow to statues any longer, at least I hope you don't do, uh, there's other things that come up in our life that comes before God. And everything that comes before God in my life is a false idol. We have that tendency as a Westerns to think like when we think about uh, those false gods on the Bible, of thinking this like statues. As like things that are manufacturing. They were. However. The Bible also tells. That behind those things. There is angelical powers. That make. Those machineries. So people follow. They are not fools. They are not just following wood. They are following because. There is devils operating as well. So let's read. What uh, Deuteronomy 37. I mean 32 17 says. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods with a lowercase g, who they have not known, idolatry, new gods who came lately, who, whom your fathers did not dread. What God is saying here, those gods that were worshipping in antiquity and even today, they may be made of stone, gold, wood or whatever. But behind them, there was a darker power manipulating them and us. And when we worship them, we were worshiping demons. And uh, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21, Paul 
hits the same point when he says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers of the demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of the demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord in the table of the demons. So it's very clear that great controversy is real. And everything else that does not bring you to God is promoted by spiritual dark forces that try to deface God's image to you. And uh, on Deuteronomy 32, there's, if you go to the beginning of the chapter, it says something interesting that explains what we just saw in Job. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 says, I'm reading from the NSRV. When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided uh, humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of gods. Some Bibles say Israel, but that's like a, a translation that's based on a translation of a translation. Just keep in mind, most of the Bibles that we have here today in English were translated from a Latin translation of a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So like two translations after is from where the King James was originally translated. So, and uh, the translators, some point in one of the two translators before the King James, they change the word gods to Israel. But if you go to the originals, the ones that we found on the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls or all the manuscripts, you find there like according to the number of gods. What that means that after fall and after the flood, Satan had free reign and all the nations on earth were allotted to different uh, Satan's minions, different 70 to be precise. He's referring here to Genesis 10, the table of nations. Each one of those nations had a different demon. That's why, like uh, if you read in the scripture many times, when somebody converted to Judaism, he would ask, like, can I, like, like Naaman, like, can I get a little bit, like a few sacks of your soil so I can bring to my land and can I worship your God there? Because they had that very clear on their minds that all those gods, they were regional. They were like tied to the land. And uh, uh, if, we, if you keep reading uh, on verse 9, we says like, but the Lord's portion or his allotment, if I if I may, it's Jacob. Jacob, Israel is his inheritance. So like, what that text is saying, that although Satan's on the earth, after the flood, God chose a people to be his special nation. Satan would have all the rest, but that little people, that's why he got a people out of no people and formed Israel. So he could showcase his way of government, his way of love with his special people. And we still have the same commission today because according to the Bible, we are Israel. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. And we're still on the hook of displaying God's love 
to people around us. So that's why 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9 reads, uh, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men, men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Do you see that? In that great controversy, God's character is being attacked. But you and I, our lives, depending who we, we pled allegiance to, are a spectacle to the universe, to men, to those around us, and even to angels, to celestial beings, to show if God is really what he claims to be. If you live a life that's controlled by Jesus, you are giving a powerful testimony for those around you and even to the celestial beings that still may have some doubts who God really is. Uh, and uh, there's an a implication on that. That that's those serious allegations against God. Then they can only be vindicated to my life and yours. Like that's why Paul says we're going to be witnesses to the universe. But there's a good, one good thing that I, before I go to the conclusion, I want to highlight, I kind of forgot, uh, is like that Satan, he lost his power. He doesn't have access to the heavenly realms any longer. If you move with me to Revelation 12, that's a very famous scene that we see uh, like the some of the church history see Jesus coming into bo uh, being born from the woman and then he being removed like by his death and uh, after that we see something that's very interesting so uh, verse 13 Actually, not verse 13, sorry. Verse 7. And war broke in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon is previously identified as Satan. And his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth in his, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, and that's after the cross, salvation and strength and the kingdom of, of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. And why he was cast down? Verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So, why Satan was defeated finally after the cross? Because a big portion of his accusations were proved wrong. 
there's a commentator. It's a very famous evangelical scholar in the book of Revelation. His name is J.K. Bill. He has a commenting on his verse. He, he does like so perfectly. He says something like that, like what we see here, that war is a, it's a allegory of a court trial where we see the two lawyers fighting each other. And like, and uh, I mentioned here before, but like the word war, there was a war in heaven. That word war is polemi, from where the word polemic, polemic comes from. So it's not a war of swords. It's a war of words. It's an argument. So that's why he's saying like, that's a courtroom scene where the accuser is being proved, is being disbarred because he's using illegal methods. And then he lost his bar, he lost his access to court. And now, the rules of engagement had reversed. Before, Satan owned the place. He could do everything he wanted with your life by default. Uh, and uh, we only would have protection if we fully surrender to God. Now, God owns the place. But now, Satan can only do harm to those that are they only have full control of their life for those that are fully His. And God can do more for us. But we still have a place to do. We have to surrender to God all the time. Because we don't know where we stand. So, uh, why prayer, and I mentioned this before. Why prayer is so important? Why we see sometimes, for example, in the Bible. Like in Mark uh, 5. When he uh, comes to his hometown, he wants to cure a bunch of people, but people don't believe him. And then the book of Mark make a side note, make a comment saying like, he could not cure as many as he desired and just a handful, two or three, uh, he cured because people didn't have faith. And in other places, we see he curing people even if they manifest in their faith. Why? Because they were already his. Since we don't know uh, if we are living in, in a, if we are fully his or not, we have to ask him always to take our pride aside, to take our sins aside, and to put, build this head of protection around us, to give him more authority to protect us and to shoot the devil down. Although he doesn't have access upstairs any longer. Uh, he still can claim faults from below. But uh, that's why we have to always to involve God in our life. And remember, you and I, we are uh, this is spectacle to the universe. As I said here many times, you and I are the only Bible that many people can read. So let's leave it. Let's, uh, as somebody said on Sabbath school for me, and I love that phrase, we are sermons in shoes. So, and uh, thank you, Dick, uh, Dixie, giving credit to who's due. Like, I love this because that's what we are. So, in this, comics, in this cosmic conflict, there is rules of engagement. Those rules are not ideal. We don't know all of them, but there's a good analogy that I want to, uh, to give you. Like, if you ever went to an old house or to an old basement, like, 
you fatally, you probably got your head on a, on a, spy, on a spy web, right? On a spider web, sorry, on a spider web. Why? Because we didn't see it. Those things are so thin that the light has to be just right, on the right angle for you to see it. So sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. Those are the rules of engagement on the Bible. Sometimes you see them, sometimes you don't. So how can I trust God in all that? And in order to go there, I want to share a parable with you. Uh, that's our verse of today. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. Let's read uh, verse 1 first. Can you read for me, Jerry, verse 1? Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So that, uh, that uh, piece of the book of Isaiah is called the song, uh, the, song of, of the, the song of the vineyard or the parable of the vineyard. And uh, who is speaking here? You may think it's God, but it's Isaiah is the one that he's saying. Because he's saying, let me sing about my well-beloved song. A song of my beloved. And the beloved is God. So it's Isaiah talking. And, uh, uh, and he starts to talk in a way that evocates uh, something that was very common on his day. Like in John 3.29, we read the story uh, uh, about the brides. And like then uh, Jesus says, like in John 3.29, He who has that bride is the, is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands up and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. That's talking about a costume like that... Uh, Somehow we still have today, like we have the, the bride, we have the groom, we have the, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids. And like they were to function on, on the community. They are the ones that would go out and invite everybody to the wedding. Th those are the ones that would puff the, the, the groom up. And uh, that's the function that Isaiah is, is doing. He is being that best man of the groom. And uh, just uh, for you to not miss the point, you and I are called to the same thing. We are also those heralds, those uh, best men that goes, that let people know how awesome the groom is. That's what Paul just said. And now uh, Isaiah is representing that on his life as he sings that song. We should be singing those songs too, to those around us. So let's uh, uh, keep going. Like he's, he says, he's, uh, he's going to sing uh, a song for my beloved concerning the vineyard. And uh, he's evocating both Psalm 80, 1 to 16, and Jeremiah 2 21, where he says, Yet, I planted your choice vine, completely faithful seed, 
How do they have turned yourself before me into the degenerate shots of the foreign vine? So let's keep reading what Isaiah says. Let's read verses 1 and 2 now. Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a, on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in, the, in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Do you see what's happening? Even reminds me of Job, like, like the he's preparing the vine. He plant the right seed. He cleaned the, the land. It's out. He did. He did everything he could. He uh, he even put like a hedge of protection around it. He put a watchtower so nobody could uh, mess with his vine and everything. But what it produced? Worthless ones. The, the word wordless there in the Hebrew, it's like a, a bosin. That means literally stink fruit. Like he did everything. He planted the best seed. He expected good fruit. And it came stink fruit. And uh, that word expected, it means not like something that I, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. It's like a cows and a... Um, and consequence type of thing is like when I flip the light switch, I expected, I I I I expect the light to go on. Like I'm doing what I'm supposed. The light has to go on. That's what he's talking about. But what happened? Let's read the rest. Two verses three and four. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? So now he's saying, my people, that little people that I, I wanted to be my, my, my witnesses, I did everything. I planted good seed, I protected them, I cared them, I sent the prophets, I did everything I could and they decided to do not bad they want to be stink fruit they so what what can I do you have to judge he's calling everybody that reads this what did I do wrong what I didn't do that I was supposed to God is saying to us that in that great controversy he did everything he was supposed to do but at the end it's our decision Mine and yours, if we want to become good fruit or stink fruit. But now, uh, in conclusion, I want to uh, bring you to the, a parable that we read, but we don't visually understand right. Let's go to Matthew 21, 33 to 37. Matthew 21, 33 to 37. Those two parables are related. Actually, Jesus is mentioning that parable and is expanding it. And that expansion, it's an important one for us. So, I'm going to read. Matthew 21, verse 33 on. Listen 
to another parable, Jesus said. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press on it and built a tower on it. Do you see the resemblance? He's, make, he's quoting that parable. So everybody knew what the parable was about, that was about them, was about us. And I rented it out to vine growers, and they went in a journey. Now he's giving more detail because more stuff happened. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to, to the vine growers to receive his produce. Verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Verse 38. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And says, seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what he will do to those vine growers? And the question that lingers is like, what else could I have done? What else Jesus could have done? He even sent his own son. And we killed him. And we continue to kill him today. As we choose other gods before him. As we choose our own pleasures before him. As we go to different directions. That's not what he intended for us. What he could do differently. Like, uh, and I beg to, to tell you that like, although we may not understand all the things. This parable tells that God did everything he could. Even sending his own son. Incarnating God in person. Dying for us. So we could have our hope of salvation and of life eternal with him. In the uncertainties of this world. In all those problems. Although we don't know all the rules. We don't know how, why God does what he does. We can trust in the God of the Calvary. Because he did everything he could do. And he still loves you and me so much. That his promises you can count on it. And he said one day I will make clear all things. One day I will wipe off your uh, face. Our tears. Pain and suffering will be no more. We can trust on the God of the Calvary. And uh, that's why Paul says in Romans 3, 1-4. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is to be benefit the circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? And the answer is no. And he continued. Verse 4. May it never be harder. Let God be found true. Through every man be found a liar. As it's written. That you may be justified in your words. And prevail when you are judged. At the end. 
God will be justified. At the end, that his character will be above board. And you and I can have the assurance today that his love, the assurance of his presence of our life, is the only thing we need to live a righteous life. It's the only thing that we need to be witnesses. It's the only thing that we need to uh, buy our tickets, so to speak, to live with him forever. Mm. On the next sermon, I'm going to explore more on that. But today, I want to let you know, because the God of Scripture did everything he was supposed to do, even send his own son, he is good. He is love. He is not the author of evil. Satan is. And sometimes, we have to wait to see things for what they truly are. God is not a tyrant. He loves you. And as a proof of his love, he gives his life for you and me. And as we accept that God of the Calvary, uh, as he demonstrates his righteousness on the Calvary, we can live uh, with certainty that although the word may not make sense to us today, he's going to get us through because he already paid for your price and mine on Calvary. And may Lord bless us today. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, you are such an awesome God. You did everything you could, and even more. You did even the unimaginable, the unthinkable, that even the heavenly beings didn't believe that that was possible. You became one of us and died on the Calvary. So by your victory, you could nullify the accusations of the devil. And by your victory, the devil could be thrown out once and forever. By your victory, we can have the hope that one day that great controversy will be over. And uh, sin and sinners will be no more. By your love, we can rest assured that even if the word does not make sense today, we can trust in the God of, the Cal of Calvary because you did everything you could and more. You, we can trust that even when we are going through troubles, you are there with us. We cry when we cry, and you laugh when we laugh, because you love us so much as a faithful father that loves his kids. Help us, dear Lord, to, although we don't know everything, help us to trust on you. Help us to make sense on this on this chaotic world that we live in. Help us to uh, make sense through faith on you that your love uh, is enough for us. As the, your, as the word says, like your love covers not only a multitude of sins, but your love shows off, shows off our fear. So let us be filled of your love today and let's Represent your character as we go out and about doing your business. Let's do as, uh, not as ourselves. Let's people see, not our faces, but see Jesus through us. Let's choose today to be good fruit because we know that you did everything for us. I pray for me and I pray for those that are listening, for those that want to surrender, uh, regardless if they are physically here or watching through the internet.
Help us, dear Lord, to accept that there's things that we don't know. But uh, you are in control over all things. And at the end, we're going to clean up our face, all the tears. Pain will be gone and evil will be no more. Help us to live in faith and to walk by faith, communicating your love in everything we do. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.